Okay, so I'll be talking about the 10 commandments of dermatopathology. These are kind of my rules and secrets which I have formulated over the past few years, and I follow them as a practicing dermatopathologist and find them extremely useful, and I would love to share them with you guys. Okay, so coming to my rule number one. Diagnosis of psoriasis is not as simple as one might think. Now, it's simple when patients present with these classic clinical lesions, which are the scaly erythematous plaques with the silver-white scale, and when nail changes of psoriasis are present. However, conditions where psoriasis may be difficult to diagnose clinically include in patients with erythroderma, lesions of flexural or inverse psoriasis, pustular lesions of psoriasis on volar side, in early or macerated lesions of psoriasis, partially treated lesions, solitary lesions, or when the features of psoriasis are superimposed on other lesions. The problem is that the histologic diagnosis of psoriasis is very straightforward when the lesions are classic. But the classic lesions are not biopsied. It's when the clinical diagnosis isn't clear, that's when the histologic diagnosis is required. And non-dermatopathologists in these settings are often less confident in rendering a diagnosis of psoriasis and use terminologies like compatible with or psoriasiform dermatitis more frequently. Now, these are the classic features of psoriasis. So, you know, this is as best as it can get. So you get a psoriasiform epidermal hyperplasia. And what does that mean? It means that the lower ends of the epidermis, which is called the reedy ridges, they all are kind of bulbous and expanded, and they fall at the same level, like as pointed by the arrow over here. So, you know, it almost looks like a curtain nicely falling down. You have confluent parakeratosis, and you see neutrophils in the cornified layer, and that is what is called Munro's microabscesses, and, you know, may be seen clinically as pustules. You see dilated vessels, uh, you know, which are filled with blood in the superficial dermis, and if the patient was to scratch these blood vessels, that's what is going to produce the auspice sign. So this is the classic features of psoriasis, no problem to diagnose. Okay, now the histologic examples where diagnosis of psoriasis may be difficult is similar to its clinical counterparts. So in patients with erythroderma, um, in pustular lesions of psoriasis on volar sites, flexural lesions of psoriasis, macerated lesions, early evolving or partially treated lesions. Now, what happens in erythroderma? And, you know, patients, patients erythrodermic psoriasis does happen. Now, erythroderma results in a pretty primitive appearing squamous epithelium. So all the classic features of psoriasis, which I just demonstrated to you, will not be there. One has to look for very subtle clues on histology, which all the pathologists may not be aware of. Like, you have to look for neutrophils in the carnified layer, dilated vessels, and even subtle suprabasilar mitoses because the rapid turnover rate of the epidermis in erythrodermic psoriasis. So what you might need to do is, when you don't get a diagnosis back, perform a repeat biopsy once the erythroderma cools down. That may give you a more definitive answer. Now, pustular lesions of psoriasis on volar sites, we deal with this quite a bit, and they are a lot of challenge to diagnose, not only clinically, but even histologically. They look virtually identical to dyshydrotic dermatitis or an irritant dermatitis or dermatophytosis. Uh, a biopsy can exclude a fungal infection because we have special stains which can do that, but ultimately the distinction, distinction between pustular psoriasis on volar sites and dyshydrotic dermatitis may be very difficult. And again, you may need to perform a repeat biopsy of a more classic psoriasiform plaque, which is not on the volar site, if possible. Okay, now, what 
what happens is patients with psoriasis have the so-called psoriasiform diathesis, which means that they develop features of psoriasis superimposed on lesions seen coincidentally. So for example, a seboric keratosis or a verruca. So you send it to us as a benign keratosis, and we are like, there are features of psoriasis that are superimposed on the lesions that are seen coincidentally. Alternatively, isolated papules and plaques of psoriasis may arise, which will mimic a benign keratosis or a carcinoma. So it, rules, it comes out as rule of squamous cell, and we say it's not a malignancy, but it's suggestive of focal lesion of psoriasis. Is that possible clinically? Implying that clinical correlation is recommended to determine if the patient has psoriasis clinically. Okay, so this is a patient who presents with these kind of multiple hypertrophic scaly plaques, and they look like squamous cell carcinoma or keratoacanthoma. And a biopsy is done, and it does not show any malignancy. And as you remember from a few previous slides, these are the features of psoriasis. You have the psoriasiform epidermal hyperplasia, the neutrophils and the carnified layer. And this is a verrucous lesion of psoriasis in a patient who has psoriasis clinically. So you can see how much of an overlap can be there in the clinical and in the histologic presentation. Now, this is a lesion that uh, uh, nobody calls it a pale cell acanthoma. You don't look at this lesion and be like, rule out a pale cell acanthoma. It clinically comes as a solitary, often a solitary papule on the lower extremity, and the histologic uh, impression is rule out Bowen's disease or a basal cell. And the biopsy is done, and this is what we see. We do not see any malignancy. There is no tumor. We see features that look like a solitary lesion of psoriasis. So this lesion is very sharply demarcated from the adjacent epidermis. And what you see is features of psoriasis. You will have neutrophils in the carnified layer, you know, the uh, psoriasiform hyperplasia. And if I was to demonstrate with a special stain, a presence of glycogen within the cells, it will highlight. It will show abundant glycogen within these cells, and that is what gives the lesion the name, a clear or a pale cell acanthoma, because under the microscope, the cells look absolutely clear. So clinically, it looks like a malignancy. Histologically, it's not a malignancy. It looks like a solitary lesion of psoriasis, but obviously the patient does not have psoriasis because clinically this is just one lesion. Okay. So in summary, psoriasis is easy to diagnose clinically and histologically when characteristic features are present. But the problem is that the classic lesions are not biopsied, and when the clinical diagnosis isn't clear, the histologic diagnosis may also pose a problem. And in this setting, you have to use ancillary clues and clinical pathologic correlation to establish the diagnosis. Okay, so moving out of the realm of psoriasiform dermatoses and coming to lichenoid dermatoses. Now, lichenoid infiltrates, though kind of simple to recognize histologically, can be a challenge when presenting in a different clinical scenario. Now, what exactly is a lichenoid infiltrate? Now, a lichenoid infiltrate refers to this band of infiltrate. So you see the yellow arrow where it's highlighting? It is this band of infiltrate which kind of obscures the dermo-epidermal junction. So you really don't know where the epidermis has ended and the dermis has begun. Now, the classic clinical disorder which presents with this kind of manifestation is lichen planus. However, there are a number of other inflammatory dermatoses and even neoplasms which can have secondary lichenoid infiltrates. So what else does lichen planus show? It will show these kind of irregular projections of the epidermis into the dermis, and these are like, like really pointed reedy ridges or sawtooth acanthosis. You see this kind of hypergranulosis, and you also see these destroyed 
pink necrotic keratinocytes within the epidermis. And you all know, I, don't, I probably didn't even need to put this slide, but you all know that clinically psoriasis presents with pruritic, violaceous, uh, flat-top papules, most commonly on flexural aspect of the extremities. Okay, now, there are a number of other inflammatory dermatoses which can have lichenoid infiltrates. So we have lichenitidis. Now, lichenitidis, um, you, you must have encountered it, and uh, it's a condition where you have these lichenoid papules in the flexural and the groin area, really tiny, small lichenoid papules. And histologically, again, you see this really tiny lichenoid infiltrates, and you see the epidermis, which is the, which is the other arrow, I'm sorry, which is the other arrow right over there, um, over here. It shows this kind of a club-shaped expansion of VD ridges on the other side. The second condition which can have a lichenoid infiltrate is lichenstritis or adult blaschitis. And what you see in over here is this linear hyperpigmented papules and plaques in a linear configuration on an extremity. And histologically, again, you see a lichenoid infiltrate, but it also has some deeper inflammation around the sweat glands and the hair follicles and the blood vessels. Okay. Lichenoid drug eruption. You know, the patient comes with this generalized pruritic lichenoid eruption, and it occurs after taking drugs like thiazide diuretics or ACE inhibitors. And histologically, we again see this lichenoid infiltrate, which will have lots of eosinophils within it. So whenever we see eos with a lichenoid infiltrate, we think about a lichenoid drug eruption. <clears throat> this is a kind of a pigmented purpuric dermatosis, lichenoid purpura of Dudrow and Bloom. And this also kind, kind presents with this lichenoid pigmented papules. And histologically, again, we see this lichenoid infiltrate, but with a lot of blood within the dermis, which gives the purpuric appearance to the lesions. <clears throat> Pleva, petrisis lichenoides, presents with this recurrent eruption of papillonecrotic lesions. And histologically, again, we see a lichenoid infiltrate, but we'll have other features. You will see neutrophils in the crusted layer. You'll see blood in the dermis and a deeper inflammation around the blood vessels. LSNA, lichen sclerosis et atrophicus, presents clinically with a white atrophic plaque with a wrinkled tissue paper appearance, and histologically, again, it's a lichenoid infiltrate, which is kind of pushed down by this band of destroyed dermis, and you see a lot of epidermal atrophy, which kind of gives the atrophic appearance to the plaque clinically. Syphilis is another lichenoid dermatosis, and you, you know clinically can present with keratotic papules and plaques on the palms and the soles, or with a generalized maculopapular eruption, and histologically you will see a lichenoid infiltrate, but a hint to the diagnosis is the presence of plasma cells. So whenever we see plasma cells in a lichenoid infiltrate, we always think about syphilis. And fortunately enough, we have some special immunohistochemical stains which can highlight the syphilitic organisms. So we can throw in a stain there, and this is a treponema pallidum antigen, and it will highlight all these, uh, um, the spirochetes, which are these spiral, spirally thin squiggly organisms at the dermoepidermal junction, and this will make a diagnosis of syphilis. Okay, what is not known to a lot of people is that lupus can also have a lichenoid infiltrate and look like lichen planus on a biopsy. However, we use then other features to make the diagnosis of lupus, and these are the features which you guys even see clinically, like the epidermal atrophy, the plugged follicles, the follicular hyperkeratosis, and a thickened basement membrane. Thickened basement membrane, for the guys who were there for my talk yesterday, you know is a very, very characteristic feature of lupus. Okay, so what are the neoplasms which can have lichenoid infiltrates? So 
benign lichenite keratosis or lichen planus like keratosis, you encountered this almost every day in your clinical practice. A solitary pink papule on the trunk and extremity, clinical impression rule out a SEPK or rule out a basal cell. And histologically, what we see is something which looks like lichen planus. So if I don't know the clinical input, I can call this lichen planus, but it, it's not LP, it's one lesion. It's, that is why it is called benign lichenite keratosis or lichen planus-like keratosis. Halo nevi, which have this area of a hypopigmented patch around them, also have a lichenite infiltrate. And this lichenoid infiltrate can actually mask and hide the melanocytic proliferation, which is highlighted by the red circle. So the red circle are the melanocytes, and the yellow arrow is the lichenoid infiltrate, which is hiding this melanocytic proliferation. Porokeratosis, which clinically you see the scaly plaque, which corresponds to the coronoid lamella. Histologically, again corresponds to the coronoid lamella, which is seen right over here, pointed by the yellow arrow. That's the coronoid lamella, which you guys are seeing clinically. And besides this, it also has a lichenoid infiltrate. So if you take a biopsy of porokeratosis and by chance have missed the coronoid lamella and the biopsy comes back as suggestive of lichen planus, do tell the pathologist to make a second look at it because the central portion of porokeratosis can have a lichenoid infiltrate and it's just a chance that the coronoid lamella has been missed. Okay, now this is a very scary situation and you know, once in a while it can be encountered. It's a big potential lawsuit, so beware of it. What can happen is melanomas, in situ invasive melanomas, and especially melanomas with regression, can have a very dense lichenoid infiltrate like that pointed by the yellow arrow over here, and this can look like a benign lichenoid keratosis. And the pathologist may completely miss the melanocytic proliferation, which is being hidden by the lichenoid infiltrate. So the diagnosis may come out as benign lichenoid keratosis or something completely benign, well, and in fact, it's a melanoma. So uh, this can happen when you know, appropriate clinical information is not there or you know, it's just not being de dealt by a pathologist who's used to seeing these kind of samples. So when in doubt, always get a second opinion. Okay, so in summarizing, the neoplasms which can have secondary lichenoid infiltrates, a melanocytic nevi, melanomas, porokeratosis, and even basal cells and squamous cell carcinomas can present with lichenoid infiltrates. There are some lesser known conditions with lichenoid infiltrates. <clears throat> Fungal infection, mucocutaneous candidiasis. What happens is it presents with a dense lichenoid infiltrate in the oral mucosa. And as I'm looking, pointing you at, at the arrow over here, the diagnosis may come out as mucosa lichen planus because the lichenoid infiltrate has distracted the attention of the pathologist and they have forgotten to look in the cornified layer right highlighted by the arrows, which contains the fungal hyphae. So if your suspicion for a candida infection is high or fungal infection is high and something doesn't match, again, make sure that the biopsy is looked at at a second time because, it, because the lichenoid infiltrate can be masking the fungal infection. A very easily treatable condition. You don't want to be missing it. Mastocytosis is another condition which can look like a lichenoid infiltrate. And you have this um, in, infiltrate of all these really uh, monotonous-looking cells which have histamine granules within them which are mast cells. And fortunately enough, for pathologists, we have some special stains which can diagnose the mast cells, like Gimsa, Toledin Blue. So the diagnosis uh, should not be missed. So in conclusion, uh, lichenoid infiltrates may be seen in a lot of different conditions, both inflammatory and neoplastic. Always be aware of an infiltrate obscuring a malignant neoplasm. 
So if your suspicion is high and the path report is not matching with this, do get a second opinion. And special studies may be helpful, but the bottom line is that clinical pathologic correlation is required. So the next time if you get a path report back saying lichenoid dermatoses, you kind of have a list of differential in your mind to go through and arrive at the correct diagnosis, obviously using clinical input. Okay, so that's my rule number three. Now we very often get biopsies stating rule out lupus versus dermatomyositis. The fact is that lupus and dermatomyositis cannot be distinguished from each other based on histology alone. Both of these have similar presentation on histology. They are both interface dermatitis, and by that I mean they will have destroyed pink keratinocytes within the epidermis. You will see epidermal atrophy and hyperkeratosis. Remember I told you a thick basement membrane. This is what you're going to see. You're going to see inflammation around the blood vessels, inflammation around the hair follicles, and you may also see mucin within the dermis. So these are features exactly of lupus and dermatomyositis. So any pathologist claiming that they can diagnose lupus versus dermatomyositis on a biopsy is not telling you the right thing. The distinction between these two entities requires clinical presentation and serology. So clinically, these lesions of lupus, discoid lupus presents with hypertrophic scaly plaques with follicular plugging, and subacute cutaneous can be annular, arcuate, erythematous plaques, or even psoriasiform lesions. Dermatomyositis has this wallacious uh, lichenoid uh, gotrans papules on the knuckles, periungal erythema and telangiectatic capillary roots, periorbital heliotropic rash, and this poikilodermatous scaling erythema, which is kind of involves the four distributed sites of the body, and this is what is called the Shawl sign. Serologically, subacute cutaneous lupus, besides the, having the ANA, has a specific uh, anti-RO or SSA antibody seen in 70% of the cases. And dermatomyositis, also recently found, has an anti-MI2 antibody, which indicates an acute prognosis and uh, acute onset and good prognosis of the disease. And besides, we have this other antibodies in dermatomyositis, including antibodies like anti-PM or SCL, which is the last one, which is often seen in patients with overlapping uh, features of polymyositis and scleroderma syndromes. Okay, now certain secrets about immunofluorescent studies for lupus. You know, we always get that patient has lupus and you send a DIF for lupus. DIF as a test for lupus is not a good test. Only when it's positive for multiple immunoreactants, it's helpful. But by the time that happens, histology is classic enough. You do not need DIF to make that diagnosis. It's a waste of test. If it's negative or if it's weakly positive, the patient could still have lupus. As a matter of fact, DIF is negative in around 40 to 50% cases of subacute cutaneous lupus. And if you were to ask me, what would you rather spend your money on, definitely would be the serologic test and doing a biopsy rather than doing, it, doing a DIF. DIF is usually negative in dermatomyositis and most other connective tissue diseases like scleroderma. So if you were thinking I could do a DIF to distinguish between lupus and dermatomyositis, you are wrong. Because if it's negative, it could still be either one of the two conditions. And well, if it's positive, you might think that it's favoring a little bit lupus over dermatomyositis, but again, that is really not sure. Okay, this is what the DIF for lupus shows. It shows the coarse granular deposits of multiple immunoreactants. IgM is the most common, IgG is the most specific, and you see this deposition along the basement membrane, which is what you see over here, but you can also see it around blood vessels and hair follicles. <clears throat> so coming to my next rule. 
Leukocytoplastic vasculitis is a reaction pattern. You cannot determine the cause of it from the biopsy. You all in this room must have dealt with leukocytoplastic vasculitis, right? You know, it, it's, you deal with it. So patients present with hemorrhagic erythematous non-palpable, a kind of a purpuric eruption, and even bullous and nodular lesions can occur. So they can look mild to a real severe presentation. Histologically, this is what we see, and this is what we see always. We will see blood in the dermis. This is because the vessels are destroyed, and that gives the purpuric appearance to the lesion. You will see a lot of inflammatory cells, and all the inflammatory cells, they break down and produce nuclear dust. And this is what is called leukocytoclasia. So leukocytoclasia comes from the fact that under the microscope, we are seeing nuclear dust. The inflammatory cells have broken down. But what makes it a vasculitis is this last feature. This is actually a lumen of a blood vessel. The blood vessel is completely destroyed. It's completely chewed up. This is called fibrinoid necrosis of the vessel wall. And when we see this, we know that it is leukocytoclastic vasculitis. That is all I can tell you on a biopsy. I can tell you it's leukocytoclastic vasculitis, period. Can I be a hero and tell you more? What is this? There are so many causes of leukocytoclastic vasculitis. The list is humongous. It can be infections, streptococcal viral, can be a drug, can be an autoimmune disease like lupus dermatomyositis, can be vascular diseases, polyarthritis, Wegener's, cryoglobulinemia, can be carcinomas and even lesser known conditions like sarcoidosis or hemolytic anemia. I cannot tell you what has caused leukocytoclastic vasculitis. You need to take a good history, clinically examine the patient, do ancillary assays and testing to arrive at the correct diagnosis. Now, um, certain secrets about immunofluorescence immuno studies for vasculitis, and we, we get this very often. DIF as a test for vasculitis is not good. Most of the time, if the lesions are more than 24 hours old, it will be negative. But really, the histology and clinical presentation are classic enough, and you do not need DIF to make the diagnosis. It's a waste of money. And a rule about ulticarial vasculitis, it's extremely rare. So for every real case of ulticarial vasculitis, there are thousands of cases of ulticaria which do not have vasculitis. So biopsying every random patient with ulticaria to make sure that it does not have vasculitis is, again, has a very low yield. You must have a good clinical reason to be biopsying a patient with ulticaria to rule out vasculitis. And again, histologically, what we will see is leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Okay, now there is one type of leukocytoclastic vasculitis where DIF can actually be helpful, and this is the one condition only, and that's Henoxcolin purpura. Now this condition you, you may have encountered or you might encounter in your clinical practice. It often occurs in kids and young adults, and they have a preceding history of a viral infection, and then subsequently they develop fever, arthralgias, abdominal pain. They'll have blood in their urine because of glomerulonephritis, and they will have the skin rash, which looks like vasculitis because it is hemorrhagic, uh, palpable, patent, kind of a lividoid purpura occurring on the buttocks and lower extremities. If you do a biopsy, it will show leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And again, that is all I can tell you on a biopsy. It's leukocytoclastic vasculitis. But if the clinical impression of an HSP is strong, you might consider doing a DIF study because the DIF only for this kind of leukocytoclastic vasculitis is really specific. We will see these granular deposits of IgA in the vessel wall, which will make the diagnosis of HSP in conjunction with histology. 
So in summary, DIF is useful for determining the cause of leukocytoplastic vasculitis in only patients with HSP and not in the other conditions. Okay, so rule number five. So immunofluorescence studies, I've said, is bad for lupus, bad for dermatomyositis, for vasculitis, but there are a whole group of immunobullous diseases where you need to do immunofluorescence studies. Now, so blistering diseases of the skin. Now, these are broadly classified into intraepidermal blistering diseases and subepidermal blistering diseases. Now, intraepidermal blistering diseases are the one where you see this blister within the epidermis, and these are uh, the conditions such as pemphigus, haley, haley, jarius, or Grover's disease. In subepidermal blistering diseases, you see the blister beneath the epidermis, and that's why these are tense blisters of bullous pemphigoid or porphyria. Okay, so pemphigus vulgaris, and you all know that patients present with these really flaccid, fragile blisters which will rupture easily. You do not see any intact blisters, and what you see is this crusty scales and erosions. And uh, histologically, again, we see uh, what is demonstrated over here, what is happening in pemphigus? The, the, the keratinocytes, which are cemented together by desmosomes, the desmosomes are all destroyed. So what happens is that these keratinocytes, they all fall apart. And this is what is called acantholysis. So intraepidermal acantholysis, because the keratinocytes are all falling apart, and you get this intraepidermal blister seen right over here. Okay, pemphigus foliaceous. Patients can present with erythroderma. So remember, erythroderma, pemphigus foliaceous can happen. And they also present with these really uh, flaccid uh, blisters, which will rupture easily and you basically leaves behind hyperpigmentation or scales. And again, histologically, we see this blister, which is within the epidermis because the cells have fallen apart, and that's called acantholysis. And the blister in pemphigus foliaceous can actually be very, very subtle. So if the pathologist is looking at it and is not suspecting pemphigus foliaceous, they will miss it if, you know, that's not on the radar. Okay. So the problem is that this acantholysis with the cells falling apart can be seen in a lot of other conditions. You can see it in Darius, Grover's, Haley, Haley, drug eruptions, bullous impetigo, so on and so forth. So you do need immunofluorescence studies to confirm a diagnosis of pemphigus. Because on immunofluorescence, pemphigus vulgaris will show this characteristic pattern wherein the immunoreactants will be deposited in between the keratinocytes within the epidermis, and pemphigus foliaceous will also, so, <clears throat> will also show a similar pattern, except that the deposition is going to be more prominent in the upper layer of the epidermis, as seen right over here. So DIF is very, very characteristic. Now, um, subepidermal blistering. The subepidermal blister is basically a blister which is beneath the epidermis, and that's why it's a very tense blister. So whenever I see a subepidermal blister, the next thing to do is to look inside the blister cavity. And you see, does it have a lot of inflammation? That means it is cell rich, or does it have no inflammation? So that means it is cell poor. Now why we do that? Because there can be cell rich blistering diseases. So blisters which have a lot of cells, these are diseases like bullous pemphigoid, dermatitis herpetiformis, linear IgA disease, bullous lupus, and then the conditions with no cells. So these are porphyria, pseudoporphyria, and EBA. So cell poor and cell rich. Now, bullous pemphigoid, you know, in contrast to pemphigus, these patients present with these really uh, tense blisters. And sometimes patients may have ulticarial lesions with no blisters, which is called the ulticarial phase of bullous pemphigoid, which is a prodromal phase. And histologically, you again uh, see this uh, cell-rich blister, which has a lot of eosinophils within it. 
DHU node presents with these really excoriated pruritic papillar eruption, and you do not see any intact blisters because the patients have excoriated them all, and they occur on the buttocks and extensor aspect of extremities. And histologically, we see this uh, a blister which has a lot of neutrophils. So neutrophils are seen in DH. Linear IgA disease similar to dermatitis herpetiformis, except that you get a more pruritic generalized eruption, and patients can also have mucous membrane involvement with conjunctivitis. And histologically, again, you see a blister which has neutrophils, and it looks like dermatitis herpetiformis. Epidermolysis bullosa acquisita, and um, porphyria, and pseudoporphyria, all of them can have really tense blisters, which most commonly occur on the extensor aspect of extremities. And they keep on occurring, and the patient's skin keeps on healing with milia and scarring, and that's what you see. And if you were to take a biopsy, you would see a cell-poor subepidermal blister. So this is porphyria and pseudoporphyria. Both of them have the same kind of a clinical presentation with these tense blisters. But in addition, porphyria can present with sclerodermoid fasces, like coarse, thickening facial features, and hypertrichosis. And again, histologically, all these conditions have no inflammation within their blisters, cell-poor blisters. Now, the problem is that there is a lot of overlap in the histologic uh, presentation of these diseases. So bullous pemphigoid may not have eosinophils. It may have neutrophils and look like DH and linear IgA disease. It may have no inflammation and look like porphyria. Dermatitis herpetiformis and linear IgA disease cannot be distinguished on histology. They may look similar on histology. Porphyria, pseudoporphyria, and EPA, even though they have no inflammation, can have inflammation and make it look like either BP or DH. Now, because of so much of overlap, you need to do immunofluorescence studies to establish the diagnosis. Now, what is the proper technique for doing this immunofluorescence studies? You always need to do two biopsies. One biopsy is for regular histology, which should be sent in a routine formal into the lab. And the other biopsy is for DIF, and do not put that in formalin, but put that in Michelle's fixative. The one for routine histology includes a biopsy of the edge of the blister and the adjacent skin, put it in formalin, and the one for immunofluorescence, do not biopsy the blister, biopsy the adjacent non-inflamed, um, I'm sorry, adjacent non-blistering inflamed skin. So this is where you do a biopsy and put that in Michelle's fixative and send it to the lab. So again, for routine histology, edge of the blister and the normal skin, never biopsy the blister because the epidermis is going to be lost and no reliable result will be produced. And for DIF, never ever biopsy the blister. It will definitely produce degeneration of immunoreactants and give you a false negative result. Now, this is an example of bullous pemphigoid, which is beautifully positive. You can see the nice, shiny green, green membrane. But when the blister itself was biopsied, the result was a false negative. So you don't want to biopsy the blister. So this is how bullous pemphigoid looks on DIF. You get this linear deposition of IgG and C3 along the basement membrane. In DH, so you see how different they look. You get these granular deposits of IgA at the tips of dermal papilla. In linear IgA, you get IgA deposition along the basement membrane. In uh, EBA, looks similar to bullous pemphigoid, and you know we have further tests that can distinguish between BP and EBA. But EBA is a very rare disease, so you know you may not. It's it'd be very rare if you clinically encounter it. Okay, PCT and pseudoporphyria both look similar on on DIF, and what you see is these kind of uh, deposits around the vessels, and these vessels are called the donor blood vessels. So we in pathology love to equate any anything we see with a food article, and so these look like donuts. 
Okay, I can see you guys are very stressed out, so relax, okay. <laughs> kind of moving on to the next topic. Uh, we deal with this quite a bit. You have to be extremely cautious of the use of special stains like immunohistochemical stains and gene rearrangement studies for determining clonalities in tumors in, in, in lymphomas. Always remember that any special stains done in dermatopathology are just ancillary assays. They're all just tools that help us in making the diagnosis. They do not replace the clinical information or the histologic presentation. They can be overused and misused and give you a false diagnosis. Now, gene derangement studies are often helpful, but they're not pathognomic of anything. They may be negative in lymphomas, for example, early path stage lesions of mycosis fungoides, and you may have dealt with this so many times. You think it's MF, but the gene derangement comes out negative. Or they may be positive in inflammatory conditions like scabies. Now, in fact, I can give you a whole list of disorders which are inflammatory, which are not neoplastic, but they can give you a monoclonal gene rearrangement pattern. And the list is huge. It is, you know, I've emphasized it here, pleva, allergic dermatitis, actinic reticuloid, drug-induced pseudolymphomatous reactions, especially produced by anti-epileptics, lymphoid hyperplasia, lichen planus, scabies. Scabies is one condition which can give you a monoclonal gene rearrangement pattern. So what does it mean? Does it mean that these conditions are lymphomas? Absolutely not. So always remember that clonality on a gene rearrangement study does not imply lymphoma. Now, you know, we often do immunohistochemical analysis to try to distinguish between lymphoid hyperplasia versus lymphoma. But remember that this is also not perfect either. Now, before dwelling into this topic a little bit more, what do we do? So, you know, whenever we get a biopsy and we're thinking, is it lymphoid hyperplasia or lymphoma, we do some stains. And the stains are basically uh, B cell and T cell stains. So, you, you know, the lymphomas will have the B lymphocytes and the T lymphocytes. So, CD20 is a pan B cell marker. So, B lymphocytes are stained by CD20, and it typically stains the cells within the follicles, but as you can see, can also stain some cells outside the follicles. CD3 and CD5, on the other hand, are T cell markers, and they typically stain the cells outside the follicles, but as you can see, they're also staining the cells within the follicles. So staining outside the classic B and T cell zones can occur with both markers. So what are we looking for? We are looking for, is it more of B or is it more of T to help us to determine, or is it a mixed population? If it's a mixed population, then it's benign. If it's one versus the other, it can be B or T cell. But you can see that the staining can be a little bit ambiguous and may not give you a straightforward answer. Now, this is a classic case. Now, patient presents with a solitary dome-shaped lesion. The clinical impression is either a basal cell, a spitz nevus, or even a pseudolymphoma. And this is what the histology shows. Uh, on, under the microscope, we see lymphocytes, but we see other inflammatory cells. We see eosinophils, plasma cells, histiocytes, and we see this kind of uh, pale staining germinal centers. Now, in a case like this, this is straightforward. We do not need to even stain it up. This is lymphoid hyperplasia, period, next case. That is as simple. The problem arises in cases like this. It's a solitary lesion. You biopsy it. And what we see is a monotonous infiltrate, which is... Uh, like the lymphocytes, we just see lymphocytes. We do not see any other inflammatory cells. We do not see those germinal centers I just showed you. And you stain it up. And the staining is ambiguous because it shows you either a mixture or a slight preponderance of one cell population over the other. So these cases are not equivocally diagnostic of either a benign lymphoid hyperplasia or of a malignant lymphoma. So they are, uh, they are difficult cases, and what do you do? So they deserve to be called atypical lymphoid infiltrates. 
Now, what do you do for these cases? Do you perform gene derangement studies? Well, if it's positive, it may still not be a lymphoma, and if it's negative, it may still be a lymphoma. So you're kind of in a bind. The best thing to do with these patients is close clinical follow-up. If they are small lesions, you can excise them, and in big lesions, even localized radiotherapy has been tried. Okay, now, PAT stage mycosis fungoides is a condition which often poses a problem to be diagnosed both clinically and histologically. Clinically, these lesions are hypopigmented or erythematous macules and patches, and they occur kind of in the non-sun-exposed sites of the body. They don't like the sunlight, and they kind of um, have this arcuate morphology and with kind of, a, 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 again, a wrinkled tissue paper appearance. And uh, these lesions, for the longest time, they can look like chronic eczema, atopic dermatitis, or a drug reaction, and you may not get the correct diagnosis. This is because even on histology, the, the diagnosis isn't straightforward. The findings can be really, really subtle. Patchy band-like infiltrate, few lymphocytes within the epidermis. So, you know, you cannot make a straightaway, oh my God, this is mycosis fungoides, next case. So it's difficult. Now, we, we always get, why don't you stain these cases up? Did you see the number of lymphocytes which were there in, uh, in the slide to be stained? They were like barely eight or 10. That's the problem. Most of these cases are, have so, uh, do not have a lot of cells to be really stained. You would want to have the classic staining pattern, which is like this, which is where the epidermotropic lymphocytes, which are you know, these lymphocytes, would be CD2 and 3 positive, and they would lose CD7, be CD4 positive, and be CD8 negative. But this, 90% of the cases, never happens. So you're kind of in a bind. Immunohistochemistry is non-conclusive. You may do gene derangement studies. They may come back to be negative. So really, what you need to do is close clinical follow-up, additional biopsies over a period of time. Pat stage mycosis fungoides has a very long-standing indolent cause. These patients do not become tumors and you know, die off from the disease just rapidly one day. It's a slow-evolving disease, and you have to follow up the patient clinically and you know, do biopsies. It will, it will manifest itself. Okay, so coming to my rule about pigmented lesions. So this is again a bind which we always face. You cannot do special stains or any kind of a stain in trying to make a diagnosis of a benign or a malignant, a challenging melanocytic lesions. You cannot rely upon stains. This often leads to overinterpretation and is not cost effective. Now, where did the concept about a staining for all these uh, melanomas and benign versus malignant lesions started? It kind of started from papers which were using these kind of melanocytic markers like HMB45, melan and MART1 to stain these melanocytic lesions in trying to determine is, is it benign or malignant. So what they found was the lesions that were benign would kind of show a stratified staining pattern. So the melanocytes at the base of the lesion would be negative for these markers in benign lesions, and malignant lesions would still retain that staining. They also started using markers like KI67 or MIB1, which are basically proliferative markers. They will highlight the cells in proliferation. So if you stain up with this marker and it, boom, it shows a lot of positivity, it means it's malignant because a lot of cells are in proliferation, whereas if the lesion is benign, then you will have low staining. The problem is this, and I will illustrate to you by this example. This is a this is clinically comes out as a you know a solitary round lesion. Clinical impression rule out Spitzer's nevus. Histologically, we see this really um, maturing, symmetric, well circumscribed lesion. If I draw a line to the center of the lesion, one half looks like the other half. So even at this power, I know this lesion is benign. 
And on high power, it looks like a Spitzer's nevus. This has a vertically oriented nest. You will have clefting, which is what Spitzer's nevi do, which is separation from the adjacent stroma. And you have these kind of uh, pink globules within the epidermis, which is called Camino bodies. So this is a Spitzer's nevus. Do I need to stain it up? No. Will people stain it up? Yes. And they stain it up. And when they stain it up, this is the KI67 MIB1. Look at how all these, all these cells are staining up the black, black brown dots. What does it mean? Is it malignant? You do a melanoma twin, which are melanocytic markers. What does it do? It stains the lesion throughout. So you kind of come to a crossroad. Is this lesion benign or malignant? And yes, the answer is overwhelmingly benign because my histology is consistent with that and no staining can replace that. Okay, so re remember, positive staining with any of these markers does not mean melanoma. And conversely, you may have some of the very aggressive melanomas like desmoplastic or spindle cell melanomas, which will be negative for these markers. So please remember that. So this is a scenario one. It comes to us as rule out lentigo maligna. <clears throat> the biopsy shows this. It shows this confluent melanocytic proliferation. The melanocytes are involving their nexal structures. You see these large, bad-looking nests of melanocytes, and the melanocytes are going up into the epidermis, which is pagetoid spread. This is lentigo maligna, period. Next case. Do I need to stain this? No. Again, people stain it. Do they stain it? Absolutely, yes. When they stain it, what do we see? We see confluent staining with melanocytic markers, and this is just supporting my diagnosis. I did not need the stain to make the diagnosis, but you know, anyway, uh, I did it. This is the next scenario. This comes out lentigo rule out lentigo malignant, and we do a biopsy. And what we see is increased pigmentation of the basal keratinocytes. So you see this kind, these are what are called the dirty feet. Dirty feet, the buds of uh, keratinocytes kind of arising from the lower surface of the epidermis. This lesion is on sun-damaged skin, and this is a solar lentigo. I do not see any nest, any melanocytic hyperplasia the last case which I showed. This is a solar lentigo. Next case, move on. Do I need to stain it? No. Do people stain it? Again, yes. And what happens when they stain it? This is again those same markers. Look how confluently the melanocytes are staining. And you can easily see how this lesion can be called a lentigo maligna if I was, if I was doing immunohistochemistry. So again, crossroad, benign malignant. It's a benign condition because my histology told me that and no, nothing, nothing can replace it. Okay, so this is the scenario one and two side by side. The first condition is a lentigo maligna and melanocytic hyperplasia is being highlighted. The second scenario is a lentigo and you can see how similar these two things look. And that is why overinterpretation as lentigo maligna can happen on immunohistochemistry. Now, why does this happen? Remember that sun damage produces melanocytic hyperplasia and any kind of a special stain is going to overstain and overhighlight those uh, hyperplastic melanocytes on sun-damaged skin. So please be very careful. Immunohistochemical stains for diagnosis of melanocytic lesions often are not helpful. They can lead to over-interpretation. They are not cost-effective. Evaluation of melanocytic hyperplasia on sun-damaged skin using melanin and MART1 can result in false positivity. And always remember that your clinical input and histologic diagnosis are still the gold standard. Okay. So coming to the biopsy technique secrets for pigmented lesions. Now, for determining the type of biopsy, you should always remember that the best specimen should be representative of the entire process. Now, to evaluate a specimen for dysplastic neva from melanomas, we need the architecture and cytology, but most importantly, the architecture of the lesion, 
which is the breadth, circumscription, and symmetry, which are equivalent to your ABCDs, which you what you see clinically. So the best specimen is the one which will give me a sample enough to evaluate not only the cytology, but also the architecture of the lesion. Now, excisional biopsies are obviously the best because, you know, they give you the whole lesion, but they may not be practical because the lesion may be too big to be primarily excised on their own. The best technique is a deep saucerization shave biopsy, and because that goes deep into the reticular dermis and includes much of the breadth and depth of the entire lesion. So remember that punch biopsies into pigmented lesions and superficial shave biopsies are, have a very high false negative rate and are not recommended. What is recommended, I'm sorry, is either an excisional biopsy or a deep saucerization shave biopsy. Now, punch biopsies of pigmented lesions have a very high false negative rate. You may be making a punch into a big pigmented lesion thinking that it's the most clinically concerning to you because it looks very dark. Well, it may be simply dark because it has blood within it, there is coincidental um, uh, lentigo or a seboric keratosis, or there is increased melanin. It may not be representative of that entire sample. Often, punch biopsies produce what is called the sculpture effect, and I will illustrate to you with that with an example. They convert a definitely malignant lesion into a lesion that looks benign, mature, and symmetric to me on histologic examination. Okay, so if you must make it a punch, make it a broad punch. They're completely acceptable, more than five millimeters, or punch out the entire lesion. Again, multiple small punch biopsies into a big lesion are suboptimal. They will give you only kind of a shotgun versus a panoramic view. In fact, whenever you kind of perform a punch, uh, this is what happens. So this is a punch biopsy into a big pigmented lesion. You are performing the punch right over here, and the pigmented lesion was right over there. This is the melanoma. The hole is a pigmented, but the melanoma is right over there. So you see you are absolutely missing it. Now, this was a punch biopsy done into a broader pigmented lesion, and uh, one could see the scattered hyperplastic melanocytes, and this was suspicious, but not diagnostic of melanoma in situ. But on the re-excision specimen adjacent to the scar of previous procedure, one could see this confirmed diagnosis of melanoma in situ with confluent melanocytic proliferation and pagetide melanocytes. Now, this is what is called the sculpture effect. So this is a punch biopsy of a lesion, which is in fact a melanoma. When, it, when I'm looking at it on, uh, on, under the microscope, to me, this looks very symmetric. Symmetry is the, is the best judge. If I, if I know on low power the lesion is asymmetric, I know it's a melanoma. But this is symmetric. It does not even look like a dysplastic nevus. It looks like a nevus. If I draw a line to the central half, one half looks like the other half. So what? Nevus, next case. But in fact, it's a melanoma. If I was to go on high power, I would see sheets of melanocytes and also some mitosis. So this is a melanoma, but you see how not truly representative or it gives me a misimpression of it being benign when it's actually malignant. Now, superficial shave and curettage biopsies are again a no-no. Now, uh, this is in fact a true case and uh, uh, this I encountered when I was training with Dr. Cockle and I'm not sure if he probably illustrated this case to you guys yesterday. But you know, the, uh, the clinical impression of melanoma was not known, and uh, the curettage biopsy was performed, and the examining dermatopathologist missed these invasive hyperchromatic melanoma cells. Now, this is because on a curettage, the slide looks so busy that it's not, it's not an excuse for missing the melanoma cells, but it can happen. And you know, this is what happened when this was a melanoma. So the best technique is a deep saucerization shave biopsy. This is what it looks like. So on low power, again, I know this lesion is asymmetric. 
because it has a shoulder which is highlighted by the, by the arrow and one half doesn't look like the other half. So I know this is going to be not a good lesion and when I go on high power that's confirmed because I see confluent uh, proliferation of melanocytes, I see mitoses, so I know this is a melanoma. So in summary, punch superficial shape biopsies and curettage of melanocytic lesions are not recommended because of the high false negative rate. Excisional and deep saucerization biopsies are the best for evaluation of not only architecture, but also the cytology of the lesion. Okay, so we're kind of approaching the end, so rule about infectious diseases. So now, uh, suppurative and granulomatous inflammation that is highly suggestive of an infectious process on a biopsy often gives negative tissue, stains resu tissue stain results. So you may get a biopsy report back which says suppurative and granulomatous dermatitis, highly suggestive of an infectious process. The pathologist did all the tissue stains, PAS, gram, acid fast, and you know they were negative, but they're asking you to clinically correlate with culture studies. This is because culture studies are the gold standard for diagnosis of infectious diseases. And they may be difficult to perform, especially when dealing with acid fast bacteria. But in this setting, do not forget your ancillary assays. You can do skin testing, PPD testing, chest x-ray, serologic determination for infectious antibodies. And remember, even polymerase chain reaction techniques have been developed uh, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with really fastidious tuberculous bacilli organisms. So this is a patient who presents with this erythematous indurated plaque, and the clinical impression is infection. And on histology, we again see this suppurative inflammation, lots of necrosis. And this patient was fortunate enough because a fight stain could detect the mycobacterial organism, you know, which are seen by those, you know, those crinkly, pinkish organisms. But this is very rare. This may not always happen, and you may need to do cultures. So again, always remember the immunocompromised patients. You know, AIDS may not be at its peak anymore, but there are a lot of other conditions which make people immunocompromised. Patients are on neurobiologic therapies, TNF inhibitors, monoclonal antibodies, they're undergoing transplants, and they're all immunocompromised. Immunocompromised patients get weird infections. They get infections which do not look classic clinically, do not look classic histologically. Always remember that with global climate change, diseases are appearing in unusual locations. I recently, with Laura, had a case of a lady with leprosy who had contracted the lepra bacilli from a nine-branded armadillo when she was visiting her sister in Mississippi. So strange things happen, so be on the radar. Never forget the traveler. Patients are going to unusual areas more commonly than before. They travel to Afghanistan. It's so, everything is so easily accessible that they're going everywhere. And when they go to these countries, they bring back unusual diseases, tuberculosis, leprosy, leishmaniasis. And, but still always remember, you think about the exotic things, but never forget the most common things. The most common things still in these travelers are the common things to think about. Fungal infection, tinea infection, and staph, staphylococcus. MRSA is a big problem, so remember that. Now, this was a patient, a young patient, who presented with this exotic infection. He was immunocompromised because he had a bone marrow transplant for acute myelogenous leukemia and had this multiple disseminated papules and plaques. And histologically, we saw necrotizing granulomas. And within the necrotic foci, we had these thick-walled structures which had a lot of spores within them. And this is, in fact, coccidiomycosis. So again, this is just an unusual infection. We do not see that, but it did happen in an immunocompromised patient. 
Always remember Tinya, never forget Tinya. Tinya is a great imitator, can look like a lot of things, can look like GA, can look like numular eczema, EAC, bullous disorders, psoriasis. There are so many times when you guys are not suspecting Tinea, but the diagnosis is Tinea infection. And the PAS stain of Tinea capitis and Majorque's granuloma, which is acute suppurative folliculitis secondary to Tinea infection of the hair shaft, may be negative if the correct hair shaft, if the infected hair shaft has not been sampled. So if your suspicion is high and the biopsy comes back as negative, either consider repeating the biopsy or maybe doing culture studies. Okay, and always watch out for pseudocarcinomatous hyperplasia. Now, what is this? Whenever you have an infection in the dermis, the epidermis overlying it can become really hyperplastic and look like a squamous cell carcinoma. So always be sure that your diagnosis of squamous cell is correct before performing an aggressive surgery. And I'll give you this really interesting case history, and I'm not sure if uh, Dr. Cockle showed this to you yesterday, but it's, it's, an, it's a beautiful example of a case which you know, I would like to go through again. This, I, had, I, had, I came across this when I was doing my fellowship with him, and this was a 76-year-old retired former physicist, and he presented with this kind of scaly eruption on his ear, and the clinical impression was a squamous cell. And a biopsy was done, and it looked like this proliferating squamous epithelium. This is what you see in kind of a keratoacanthoma kind of a squamous cell. But there was also this associated inflammation. But anyway, the surgery was done. And uh, the patient's ear was excised, a lymph node dissection was done, and subsequently skin grafting was performed. So what we saw was a re-excision specimen. And we saw this, again, this reactive epidermis. This is all squamous proliferation. But again, there was this a lot. This, all these blue cells over here are inflammatory cells. So a lot of blue inflammatory cells. And you know, we are looking around, looking around what is it. And we come across structures like these. And what are these? These are these tiny, you see that right over here? These things, these one, two, three, one, two, three, four, all of these are like present around these empty spaces, which are histiocytes. And they kind of remind you of the spokes of a Ferris wheel. And if you look at each of this organism very closely, it actually looks like a safety pin because uh, it has a nucleus or a kinetoplast at its one end. So we went back to the biopsy and looked at the biopsy again, and the biopsy showed these similar organisms right over here. You see that? One, two, three. Does everybody see that? All of these. So you know all these organisms right over here. And this, in fact, is leishmaniasis. So after this discovery, the patient was questioned again, and he, he did agree that he had uh, been to missionary trips to Guatemala in 2001 and 2002. Patients always come up with interesting facts after everything has been done. So remember, the patient was then treated with uh, you know, pentostam, which is a therapy for leishmania, and he did not have any subsequent uh, evidence of any further disease. He was a very good guy, did not sue anyone, but it, was, it, it, it taught me an everlasting example, and hopefully you guys will also remember that. So be extremely cautious of the diagnosis of a carcinoma in the setting of an infection. When in doubt, please get a second opinion. If something doesn't fit clinically, do get a second opinion. We see this so many times. A biopsy comes as rule-out squamous cell, and it's actually Majorque's granuloma. It's a fungal infection, which is producing all that reactive epithelial hyperplasia. Okay, you guys have had it now. You want me to disappear from the room. Okay, but my, I have to complete my 10th rule. It's the simplest rule of all, which everybody knows. Clinical pathologic correlation is the cornerstone of diagnosis. I can give you innumerable examples where clinical pathologic correlation has saved the day. Now, why does this happen? This is because a lot of conditions in dermatopathology, they look similar histologically, but they have different clinical scenarios. So I may be seeing one thing, 
but what you see clinically can be something completely different. So that is why we need to communicate. Now, this is the histologic finding of what is called acantholytic dyskeratosis. So remember, I just told you acantholysis, where the cells in the epidermis fall apart. They fall apart, and then they die. So acantholytic dyskeratosis. You can see that in Darius disease, in Haley-Haley disease, in Grover's disease. You can see that in a solitary lesion, which is looking like a malignancy, but this is a warty dyskeratoma or it can occur as an incidental finding. So I see it incidentally and I say, it's Grover's disease, next case, and you're like, is this person mad? The patient had one lesion. So again, communicate with your pathologist, you know, clinical correlation really important. This is a lesion which has increased pigmentation of these keratinocytes and it looks like a lentigo. Remember I showed you the solar lentigo? It looks like that, you have these dirty feet. And this is what you would see in a solar lentigo or a simple lentigo. And you would also see it in lentigeny syndrome. So patient has a Carney syndrome, a leopard syndrome. And you would also very interestingly see it in uh, patients with pigmentary anomalies. So Dowling and Dego's disease or Kitamura disease. So you, you had this patient with this huge back pigmentary anomaly and the biopsy comes back as lentigo. Call your pathologist and tell them, could it be these conditions? Because they can look similar histologically. This is a finding where you get all these inflammation within the hair follicle. This is acute suppurative folliculitis. You can see that in um, staph bacterial folliculitis. You can see it in Majorque's granuloma in a fungal infection. You can see that in acne rosacea. You can see that in acne keloidalis nuki. You can also see it in dissecting cellulitis or folliculitis decalvin. So again, there is one histologic finding, but so many clinical correlates to it. This is a seboric keratosis a planal seboric keratosis where you see this kind of a horn cyst which you even see on dermoscopy. Now that can be seen in an inflamed seboric keratosis and can also be seen in an epidermal nevus. So again, clinical correlation. This is the finding where you see spongiosis. Spongiosis, you see this, this, this is the epidermis and there's fluid inside the epidermis. This is called spongiosis. And you see this inflammation which have eosinophils. I will not be able to show at you at this power but you have to take my word for it. So when you see spongiosis with eosinophils, you could see that in an arthropod assault reaction. You can see that in bullous pemphigoid. You can see that in contact dermatitis. You can see that in a spongiotic drug eruption. You can see that in scabies. You can see that in ulticaria. And you can also see it in this less known condition called incontinentia pigmenti. So there are so many conditions which can give the same reaction pattern. So the overall accuracy of the diagnosis depends upon the clinical pathologic correlation. And without sufficient clinical data, the histologic diagnosis will be limited or unrestricted. So garbage in and garbage out. You know, this is only the best we can do under the microscope without sufficient clinical input. Okay, so let's all stand up and take an oath that we will follow the Ten Commandments. Just kidding. Okay, so knowledge of what we do as pathologists will definitely help, to help us to serve you and your patients better. Always use us as a tool. You know, this is, this is uh, Dr. Wellington, and, you know, we, we love to get calls from you guys. So please feel free to call, ask questions, refuse diagnosis. We really want to come up with the best diagnosis and not to be always right. We want to be always right, but not at the expense of the patient. So this is our lab and this is our multi-head 10 microscope where um, 10 of you guys were there yesterday and we love to have you. So, you know, uh, when, if, if you want to stop by, get by any slide, talk to us, please feel free to come.
And I would like to thank Dr. Wellington and Dr. Cockle, both of whom are my mentors, and I love them. And these are my two boys, and thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Any questions? Is this on? Um, what do you recommend if you're suspicious of patch stage mycosis fungoides? I read a shave biopsy is almost better than a punch in that case. You know, for any inflammatory conditions, we as dermatopathologists offer, always prefer a punch biopsy. Because any kind of a, uh, inflammatory or a neoplastic dermatosis, especially when dealing with mycosis fungoides, you want to see the inter what everything is doing, what the epidermis is doing with the dermis, how deep the inflammation is going. And you know, on a shave biopsy, you will not be able to see the deep dermis. Now, for example, if you did a punch biopsy for mycosis fungoides, and I also saw deeper inflammation with some eosinophils, then I can be really sure that it's not mycosis fungoides. But on a shave biopsy, I may not be able to see those eos, may not be able to see, because typically patch stage stages, lesions of mycosis fungoides have only a superficial infiltrate. So, you know, punch biopsies are really the best. Yes. Hey, Douglas. Hey. <laughs> Great talk. Thank you. You know, sometimes when we see pyodermic gangrenosum, those lesions are dusky and almost fasciculated and fall apart. Should we be doing a perilesional punch on those, or will that give you any, any information with that condition, or does it have to be in the lesion itself? You know, for, uh, for pyoderma gangrenous, a great question. Uh, it's a very difficult diagnosis, both clinically and histologically, because you really want to make sure that it's not an infection before you really make the diagnosis of pyoderma gangrenosum. And histologically, what we see, if you take from the ulcer, what we will see is just ulceration. And, you know, again, we will have to make sure it's not an infection. So you will have to culture the lesions. We'll have to make sure it's not an infection. If you biopsy the edge, then we will get a little bit of ulcer and a little bit of the adjacent tissue. And what makes the diagnosis of PG is at the base of the ulcer, we should see lots of neutrophils and, uh, and not much other inflammatory cells. So, you know, yes, biopsying the edge will definitely help. In fact, in any kind of an inflammatory rash, biopsying the edge of the lesion with the adjacent skin is actually the best technique because the central portion of the rash is old like the features are already gone, whereas the advancing edge of the rash is the one where you'll get new formed features. So yes, the edge is, is the best, yeah. But it's a difficult diagnosis, and you know, it may take some time before you finally come to that diagnosis, yes. Hey, Cole. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, thanks again for your talk. Um, you set the bar high, real high every time. But um, did you leave your contact information for everybody by chance? Is it on the slides? On the, <clears throat> I do not know for sure. <laughs> because I didn't see it. I was just wondering if anybody had any questions for Sure, you. that's an excellent question. I will probably leave it with you. Okay, I will. And, you know, I'll have my email, and please free feel to email me anytime. You may be in any part of the country, but you can email me. I'll be more than happy to help you guys if, in any way I can. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. Thank you.